Hello, my name is Aryan Tomar, and this is the Long 19th Century European History Podcast, presented by me, David Sway, and Jesse He. We'll be going over the six key concepts in Topic 3 of the APCED, with each of us doing two. I'll get us started with Topics 3.1 and 3.2. I hope you enjoy. The first key process that starts in the Long 19th Century is industrialization, which starts in Great Britain for six reasons. First, the agricultural revolution, which started in Great Britain, had the greatest impact on food supply, which went up as sharply as costs and time required to produce the same amount of food sharply decreased, with both technological innovations and government policies that increased agricultural efficiency. This ensured that first, not everyone had to be a self-sustaining farmer. This created a group that could participate in industrial activity. But then second, not all income had to be spent on purchasing food, creating the initial demand for industrial goods. Second, cottage industries in Britain had already created a small group of people with the capital to invest in industrial uh, machines and production means, such as Hargreaves Spinning Jenny, Arkwright's Water Frame, and eventually Watt's Steam Engine. Third, The fact that power in Britain was held primarily by Parliament, who were typically wealthy landowners and sought to increase their profits, allowed a favorability of liberal laissez-faire economics, as had been posited by Adam Smith in his Wealth of Nations near the start of the long 19th century. As a result, regulations on, on entrepreneurship and industrialization were significantly limited in Great Britain, lower than any other state at the time. Fourth, at the time that Britain started industrialization, its isolated geographic location allowed it to avoid the instability that plagued the rest of Europe at this time. This was a result of Britain's relatively measured response to Enlightenment ideas, especially opposed to a nation like France. In France, the instability of the Enlightenment-led French Revolution eventually led to the rise of Napoleon, whose conquest caused great instability in continental Europe. Britain was uniquely positioned to avoid the worst of his rampage as though the first consul's continental system was aimed at economically destroying Britain, the island nation's vast colonial network allowed it to survive its embargo from continental European markets. This leads me to the fifth point. Though Britain's domestic market and demand for industrial goods was already higher than most in Europe, Britain's holdings in the Americas at the beginning, but primarily in Africa and Asia, and especially India, created markets for industrial goods that extended far beyond Europe. As Britain could force these colonies to buy strictly from British producers, demand for goods was not a worry for industrialists. But then the final reason is that Britain's fortune with its physical location and availability of resources. This might be the one time that Britain's weather has been a good thing as Britain being an island had a damp climate, which helped textile production, the first sector in which industrialization was widespread, by keeping the fibers and textiles soft and easy to work with. In addition, the abundance of iron and coal provided a hard and sturdy material to create industrial machines with and a fuel to power those machines, respectively. Textile production was also catalyzed by England's many rivers, which greatly increased the efficiency of transportation of industrial goods. Though these conditions uniquely facilitated the start of industrialization in Britain, 
the process quickly spread to the rest of Europe, namely in Belgium, France, and the German states, the last of which, led by Prussia, would go on to become the second great industrial power of Europe, especially after its unification. Industrialization on the continent was initially led by Belgium, who by the 1840s had the most modern cotton manufacturing systems outside of Britain, as a result of its extensive use of the steam engine because of extensive coal resources within its borders. This leads us to discuss the overall trends of industrialization on continental Europe. Machines, especially those used to produce cotton, were consistently behind that of Britain for an extended period of time, as the unique circumstances of the island's industrialization gave it a massive advantage in efficiency of production and labor for decades. On the continent too, traditional cottage techniques, such as the use of hand looms, were used for much longer, more so in conjunction with new technologies. One other difference was that in Britain, there were a few key centers of industrialization, such as cotton manufacturing being based primarily in the English city of Lancashire and the Scottish city of Glasgow. On the contrary, industrial systems in Germany, France, and Belgium were dispersed throughout their land areas. The focus of industrial production was also different between Britain and the mainland. As I've mentioned, Britain was extremely efficient at cotton and textile production due to its suitable climate for such industry. However, the extensive initial use of the steam engine on the continent was used primarily for mining and metallurgy, as a result of vast mineral deposits on the European mainland. I've talked a lot about Western and Central European states. That's because Eastern and Southern Europe were still struggling with issues of inadequate resources, weak central governments, and resulting power resting in a few landowning nobles, as well as the existence of serfdom and similar labor systems in many areas that prevented the creation of an industrial working class. It is the efficiency of industrial expansion in Prussia, especially under the Realpolitik von Bismarck, that allows it to bring many German states under a Zolverian system, and eventually allows for the military and industrial power required for Bismarck's unification of the German states into a single nation, with the exclusion of Austria, and the rise of, this, of that state as one of the greatest industrial powers of the world. Both the first and second industrial revolution are part of the long 19th century, and though the former was characterized by the initial development of basic machines in the textile and mining industries, and the latter by developments in steel, chemicals, petroleum, and electricity, marking two distinct periods of the process of industrialization, many of the trends, especially to states' economies and the lives of workers, are similar in both. They simply get magnified and more similar to modern economic systems during the latter half of the time period. One way in which you see this is transportation. Between 1760 and 1830, vast canal networks were built in Britain to accommodate the need for quicker and more efficient transportation. But when that didn't satisfy demands, the innovation of the railroad became what some, some believe to be the most important single factor promoting European progress in the 1830s and 1840s. This had several impacts. First, it accomplished the original purpose of catalyzing transportation of goods, thereby reducing costs. The actual construction of railroads further spurred the demand for the industrial extraction of coal and iron, and Britain's extensive use of these materials in building railroads contributed significantly to their advantages in civil and mechanical engineering.
The development of railroads continues to occur for the entire time period, but, but the initial development of the automobile early in the 20th century marks the start of a, a trend towards increased personal vehicle usage for transportation. The railroads and steamboats are obviously still extensively utilized, both then and now. One other idea started during industrialization was the factory system, in which workers worked in a disciplined, repetitive, and monotonous manner. Because most workers were initially not used to such a format of working, owners of factories had to resort to tough methods such as firing, fines, or beating, that last one especially for children. This only gets worse in the second industrial revolution as industrial chemicals began to work their way into workers' lungs and cramped tenements made living conditions horrendous both at work and at home. This has a many societal impacts, and I'll discuss them specifically in a little bit. Another trend evident in, in, in industrialization is the role of government. Initially stronger on the mainland of Europe, state-sponsored industrial development was soon the norm throughout Western Europe. These governments enacted protective tariffs that implemented costs on imported goods to spur the domestic economy, which became more widespread as time went on, and such measures are still used today in times of economic downturn to increase economic growth. The personal lives of urban dwellers also faced significant change due to industrialization. Two ideas were prevalent in industrial families. The first was the nuclear family, a worker, his wife, and their kids. Before, one's extended family might have lived with them because everyone lived on open agricultural land. Now, however, limited space forced habitants into living with their nuclear family, which became the standard living situation for most. The second is the cult of domesticity, which is the idea that the role of women was to work the household and take care of children. The collective agreement to this idea ensured the delayed liberation of women in the economy, and though some women did end up being integral parts of the textile industry and eventually some entered the white-collar professions of teachers, nurses, and secretaries, the process of the quote-unquote domestication of women delayed their full entry into economic and political life but also spurred women's suffrage and equality activists such as Emily Davison and Emily Pankhurst. Higher wages, mass education for kids, regulation on child labor, continued developments in um, health, healthy food leading to uh, be better diets, and increased access to crude forms of birth control all helped increase the quality of life for industrial families by the end of the 19th century. One other impact of the lives of of, of one other impact to the lives of workers was emigration, a process by which prospective laborers moved from their rural towns to cities to find work, creating a mass movement of peoples within and in some cases between nations. This contributed to the creation of a single national identity in many areas, facilitating eventual rises in nationalism. Increased disposable income allowed for these families to engage in mass leisure activities, such as attending amusement parks on the weekends or using railroads to go to beaches. This period also saw the creation of music and dance halls where lower class audiences could attend, further culturally integrating the working class into aspects of culture that were previously inaccessible. In terms of marriage, economic and strategic motivations, though still key for some elites and to a degree those working and those in the working classes, was diminishing in significance in favor of marriages of mutual admiration, further increasing the happiness of urban families.
The personal lives of urban dwellers also faced significant change due to industrialization. Two ideas were prevalent in industrial families. The first was the nuclear family, a worker, his wife, and their kids. Before, one's extended family might have lived with them because everyone lived on open agricultural land. Now, however, limited space forced habitants into living with their nuclear family, which became the standard living situation for most. The second is the cult of domesticity, which is the idea that the role of women was to work the household and take care of children. The collective agreement to this idea ensured the delayed liberation of women in the economy, and though some women did end up being integral parts of the textile industry and eventually some entered the white-collar professions of teachers, nurses, and secretaries, the process of the quote-unquote domestication of women delayed their full entry into economic and political life. But also spurred women's suffrage and equality activists such as Emily Davison and Emily Pankhurst. Higher wages, mass education for kids, regulation on child labor, continued developments in um, health, healthy food leading to uh, be- better diets, and increased access to crude forms of birth control all helped increase the quality of life for industrial families by the end of the 19th century. One other impact of the lives of of, of one other impact of the lives of workers was emigration, a process by which prospective laborers moved from their rural towns to cities to find work, creating a mass movement of peoples within and in some cases between nations. This contributed to the creation of a single national identity in many areas, facilitating eventual rises in nationalism. Increased disposable income allowed for these families to engage in mass leisure activities, such as attending amusement parks on the weekends or using railroads to go to beaches. This period also saw the creation of music and dance halls where lower class audiences could attend, further culturally integrating the working class into aspects of culture that were previously inaccessible. In terms of marriage, economic and strategic motivations, though still key for some elites and to a degree those working and those in the working classes, was diminishing in significance in favor of marriages of mutual admiration, further increasing the happiness of urban families. Now I'm going to hand off topics 3.3 and 3.4 over to David. Arguably the most important and defining aspect of the long 19th century was the revolutions, which challenged the conservatism in place at the time and saw the real development of varying ideologies. These ideologies developed and took root throughout society as a response to industrial and political revolutions. A few of them include conservatism, developed into an ideology that supported traditional political and religious authorities, mostly attempting to keep people in positions of power in those positions of power for a longer time, and also maintain a nobility class throughout Europe. Liberalism emphasized popular sovereignty, individual rights, and enlightened self-interest. It was an ideology in direct opposition to conservatism. Along with nationalism, liberalism would come to define many revolutions in France and other European countries. Nationalism, one of the most important ideologies that sprouted from the time period, would fuel many revolutions regarding the formation of a new state, ethnic independence, or separation. This can be seen with Italy, Greece, and Hungary. Radicals were, well, relatively radical in their demands compared to liberals, some of which included universal male suffrage in Britain and the beginnings of feminism with first-wave feminism. Socialists called for the redistribution of society's resources and wealth based on Marxist ideologies, developed by his namesake Karl Marx and his friend-slash-beneficiary Frederick Engels. 
This focused on the uprising of the proletariat or working class and the seizing of the means of production within a society, often encouraging violent revolution. Anarchists asserted that all forms of governmental authority were unnecessary and should be overthrown and replaced with a society based on voluntary cooperation. A big name to look out for and an influential figure was Mikhail Bakunin. There was also the development of Zionism, founded by Theodor Herzl, which urged for European Jews to migrate to Israel. Liberal and nationalistic revolutions did change much of the European landscape. Many of them were characterized by a call for increased government involvement in social and economic policies and reforms to be made by the government. This included educational reform, public health reform, prison reform, labor reform, calls for better infrastructure, and general social reform. These revolutions saw a rise in labor unionization and a call for better working conditions as well, many of which were made by feminists. Feminism also pressed for more rights in general, including uh, liberties and political rights. One other notable reform was the abolition of serfdom in Russia, called for by angry serfs who, at the time, had little to no opportunity and were very impoverished. Now that we have a little bit of background on what these revolutions look like, let's look at the political and social landscape of Europe chronologically. The long 19th century pretty much began with Napoleon, whose conquest of Europe led to the development of the Concert of Europe, led by Clemens von Metternich, which sought to revert Europe to its former state and push conservatism. However, Napoleon's conquest had already done his damage. By decreasing the power of leaders in Europe, spreading the Napoleonic Code, and paving the way for revolution, revolutionary action, this revolutionary action did indeed happen. The first major revolution in the time period was caused by the decline of the Ottoman Empire, which begged what was called the Eastern Question. Major European powers felt the need to step in and decided which power would fill the, in the void left by the Ottoman Empire, and they ended up supporting Greece, which was dominantly Christian. This obviously, obviously supported their stances, and after the defeating the Turks and signing the Treaty of Adrianople, Greece gained autonomy. Even though this move instated a Christian power into the Balkans, it would end up hurting the concert of Europe overall, as three of the five countries partaking in the concert of Europe supported Greece's autonomy, which in turn meant also supporting its nationalist movement. In the 1830s, France would see the July Revolution, in which radical revolutionaries would abdicate Charles X because of his absolutist policies. These revolutionaries replaced Charles with Louis-Philippe, who was part of the bourgeoisie in France, a relatively liberal portion of French society. The most important impact of the July Revolution lie mostly in the fact that the revolution inspired other revolutions throughout Europe, causing a wave of revolution, furthering political turmoil and challenging the conservatism of the concert of Europe. 1848 would be the defining year for European society and politics, however, and it would be the turning point for liberalism. Revolutions in France, which led to Napoleon III's seizing of power, Austria, which collapsed the Austrian Empire and led to the beginnings of Hungary, Italy, which saw the first nationalist protest for Italian independence and unification, and Germany, which also saw its first attempts to unify Germany under Frederick William IV, signaled the forthcoming of a new era in Europe. This series of revolutions saw a development of new nations as well. The Crimean War later on would eventually be the nail in the coffin for the concert of Europe and its conservatism, and Cavour and Bismarck would unify Italy and Germany respectively as a result of weakening European conservatism. Bismarck, Cavour, and Napoleon III marked the beginning of new conservatism in Europe, and Bismarck and Cavour pushed nationalism within their respective states in order to strengthen their power. The unification of Italy and Germany transformed the European balance of power and led to efforts to construct a new diplomatic order. 
Bismarck was arguably the most dominant force of the time, employing real politic, which meant putting aside his conservative interests, industrializing and militarizing Germany, and orchestrating alliances to isolate France, which was one of Germany's natural enemies, and also to gain more support for Austria-Hungary. This was done in three separate conflicts, the defeat of Denmark, the defeat of Austria, and the Franco-Prussian War. By increasing tensions with France and increasing German nationalism, Bismarck successfully unified Germany after the Franco-Prussian War, framing France as the aggressors, rallying the German states to fight against France, and eventually winning the war. However, deepening alliances between France, Great Britain, and Russia at the time would prove to be a threat to German power. German naval buildup threatened Great Britain, and close contact with Russia allied France and Russia. Stronger ties, military buildup, industrialization, and nationalism would divide Europe into two main factions, with Germany and Austria-Hungary on one side, and Great Britain, France, and Russia on the other. Rising tensions would eventually burst with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and with the beginning of World War I, the long 19th century concludes. Revolution drastically changed Europe's ideological background and warped countries into completely different nations. The unification that sprouted from the fall of the conservatism of the concert of Europe forged deeper and deeper alliances among European powers, which culminated into World War I. The long 19th century was very eventful in the long time period that it was, and saw the cyclical rise and fall of empires and ideologies, all with rapid social, industrial, and intellectual progress made. Major events to keep in mind include the concert of Europe, the July Revolution, the Hungarian Revolution of 1848, the unification of Italy, the unification of Germany, and the three wars Bismarck used to unify Germany, Germany the German-Danish War, Austro-Prussian War, and the Franco-Prussian War. Key ideologies to know and understand include conservatism, liberalism, nationalism, radicalism, socialism, anarchism, and Zionism. There are many other concepts of the long 19th century that will aid in your understanding, but this overview of revolutions during the time period should give broad knowledge over the main topics. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Jesse. I'm here to round up our discussion of the long 19th century. I'll go over key concepts 3.5 and 3.6, which focus on European global influence and tensions, as well as how the cultural movements of the time express general societal feelings. Starting off first with key concept 3.5, a variety of motives and methods led to the intensification of European global control and increased tensions among the great powers. Let's divide our analysis into three segments in roughly chronological order. First, the causes, then the process itself, and finally, the responses to it. The motivations behind European imperialism and expansion were largely economic and political. As the previously discussed processes of industrialization overtook Europe, the need for raw materials became more urgent. Factories that produced manufactured goods couldn't function, and still can't function, without the basic ingredients and materials required. Also, European factories were often producing far more goods than their own consumers could intake. As a result, the search for new markets fueled European expansion. It didn't hurt that European powers could effectively monopolize their subject countries' industries via imperialism, making it a very profitable practice. Now, imperialism isn't as simple as just walking in and taking over. Well, I guess it was, but that was after it was facilitated by advances in medicine, communication, weaponry, and transportation. For example, 
quinine made from South American plants protected European imperialists as from malaria as they easily won land with their fast-firing machine guns that mowed down the opposition. Okay, Europeans kind of stomped on everyone in their way. But doing all that doesn't seem very ethical. That is, unless you claim racial superiority over everybody. With a newfound cultural obsession with science, Europeans found justification for their practices in Asia and Africa in social Darwinism, an idea that combined imperialist expansion with ideas of evolution and survival of the fittest to human race. Cecil Rhodes really liked this. Alright, we now have a motivation, a means, and a justification. It's time for imperialism to happen. Well, it happened. Europeans imperialized all across Asia and Africa, economically, politically, and culturally, sometimes through direct colonization, and sometimes through indirect influence on existing power structures. From the Berlin Conference, to Hong Kong, to the Belgian Congo, which we'll go back to in a sec, yeah, it happened. The processes of imperialism itself, arguably, are not nearly as important as the widespread effects it had. First, the propagation of European influence across the globe was influenced by existing tensions and competition between one another, and only served to intensify said tensions. World War One. What? Also, the art world went kinda bazonkers when they saw non-white people doing art. Artists in the post-impressionist world, the naive tradition, and, most importantly in this class, the mainly German expressionist style were captivated by the so-called primitive and exotic modes of expression of mainly African peoples. Artists like Kirchner, Nold, and Matisse all showed heavy traces of influence from these ideas. For example, Masks by Nold from 1911. I'm not about to analyze a painting through a podcast. Go Google it yourself, it's not difficult to see what I'm talking about. Art wasn't the only thing impacted. As in intellectuals became more familiar with these corners of the world, some began questioning the reasoning and purpose behind these colonies. For example, remember the Belgian Congo? The thing I mentioned a few seconds ago? Yeah, Joseph Conrad wrote a super famous book, Heart of Darkness, in response to and in criticism of the imperialist practices conducted there. Alright, time for Key Concept 3.6. European ideas and culture expressed a tension between objectivity and scientific realism on one hand, and subjectivity and individual expression on the other. Now, that syntax seems daunting, but there's no need to worry. Reflecting the namesake long 19th century, there was a wealth of artistic movements reflecting the vast cultural changes that Europe underwent throughout this time period. To review, I'll begin be going through this in roughly chronological order. Let's just get into it. Starting off, we have Romanticism. This was a backlash against the revolution and the Greco-Roman tradition glorifying neoclassicism, which was exemplified best by Mr. Uh, excuse my pronunciation, Jacques-Louis David and his uh, Oath of the Horatia, Death of Marat, and Napoleon Crossing the Alps, all five versions, just to name a few. No, Romanticism sought to glorify nature, individuality, the supernatural, national history, and, above all, emotion. With similar responses to revolutions and the Industrial Revolution, 
Romanticism is most famously seen in the works of Liszt, Wagner, Goya, Delacroix, Turner, Goethe, Wordsworth, Keats, the Shelleys, and so many more. Sort of following Romanticism, exciting scientific developments shifted European culture closer to materialism and realism. As I briefly mentioned before, social Darwinism was an offshoot of Charles Darwin's works in the field of biology, producing theories of evolution and natural selection that were groundbreaking both in science and against religious tradition. Karl Marx, I'm sure you know who that is, critiqued capitalism and systematically scientifically analyzed society and its inner workings. All of this progress was really well summed up by the development of positivism under Auguste Comte a philosophical school of thought claiming that every justifiable assertion can be scientifically proved. These massive developments, along with the grim realities of workers in the Industrial Revolution, had a profound impact on the cultural scene of Europe. Realism manifested itself as a response to Romanticism in both art and literature, with Corbett leading the art scene, Millet and Manet, remember him for later, notably following and Dickens, Balzac, and Flaubert serving up realist literature. These creatives sought to depict ordinary people in their most raw environments, drawing attention away from the glory-filled nature or emotions of Romanticism, but rather towards suffering and social issues. Now, the thing is, the more we learn, the more we realize how little we know. As the likes of Curie, Pavlov, and Einstein stretched the boundaries of our realities in totally wacky ways, philosophers like Nietzsche and Hegel shifted thought away from the glorification of the rational to the awareness of the irrational. Sigmund Freud brought a new interpretation of the human mind that brought light to how little we know about our own brains, which he framed as the complex web woven by the subconscious and conscious. And... Once again, these ideas were reflected by art. Modern movements like Impressionism, Post-Impressionism, and Cubism questioned the traditional ideals of art and pushed the boundaries of understanding one another via visual mediums. Manet, the realist I mentioned before, he is famous for his transition into Impressionism, a reflection of how simultaneous everything was in the long 19th century. Along with him, the more famous Monet painted en plein air, gaining massive wealth and popularity as the leading Impressionist. And how could we forget Degas, who painted dancers in the majority of his pastel and oil works? Post-Impressionism, as its name suggests, was, well, post-Impressionism. It accompanied a wide range of styles, like the aforementioned Expressionists Matisse and Van Gogh. Cubism, of course, saw the rise of Picasso, and finally, Art Nouveau brought wavy, asymmetrical, organic compositions that weren't often for a gallery display, but were still, nonetheless, modern art. <laughs>